Welcome everyone to our special Big Tent USA Spotlight Speaker event. For those of you who are, who are new to Big Tent USA, we are a national women-led pro-democracy organization promoting civic engagement through education and activism. Now I'd like to turn it over to my daughter, Amelia Thomas, who will introduce our speaker. Great, thank you, mom. You may be wondering why I'm here introducing your next spotlight speaker. I attend high school with Michael Lewis's son, who I might add in the clearest of basketball terms is a sharpshooter. We had two classes together last year and it's been great getting to know him. Back in April, after learning that Mr. Lewis was a headline speaker at our school's day-long conference on democracy, I knew I had to reach out and ask him to speak to Big Ten, a special group working hard to save democracy one Zoom at a time. Mr. Lewis, thank you for saying yes. Thanks for asking. I'm honored to welcome, <laughs> I'm honored to welcome best-selling author Michael Lewis, whose books have taught us about sports, finance, government, and tech but most of all about the human element involved in all those pursuits. While he doesn't claim to be an expert, he masterfully gives voice to his incredible characters so that we can all learn from them. We look forward to hearing his unique take on where we are right now and how storytelling might help us move forward as a country. Thank you, Amelia. Now, our moderator tonight will be Big Ten, our Big Tent friend, Dominique Browning. Dominique is an author, editor, director, and co-founder of Moms Clean Air Force and vice president of the Environmental Defense Fund, who also knows a thing or two about storytelling. We are fortunate to have her back with us to talk with Michael about good and important stories, democracy, writing, and whatever questions everyone has for them. With that, I'll hand it over to you, Dominique. Great, thank you so much, Michael. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Amelia, for making that happen. Um, let's just dive right in. As a writer, you don't necessarily start off as an expert in a subject you're covering that you do know a lot about a lot of things. How do you figure out who's giving you a chance to tell a good story? Like, how did you start thinking about government, for example? Not exactly a subject that springs to mind as full of great stories but it led to The Fifth Risk, one of my favorite of your books. Um, is tell that a question? Story. Tell us the story of being Michael Lewis. All right, so I'll tell you how The Fifth Risk came about because the books are all accidental. It's like something happens and th that I didn't expect and it leads, to the, it leads to something else and then leads to me and being really engaged with the subject. Um, the Fifth Risk starts the day that Donald Trump um, uh, moved into the White House. I had, um, I had just gotten hip surgery and I was in bed all doped up on opioids. So not exactly in my right mind. And watching, I remember that scene with Trump with Melania behind him. We're going, you know, running up the steps with the Obamas at the top. And I had a really distinct thought and it was, how's he going to kill me? And I thought, why am I thinking this all of a sudden? And I started thinking about why I was having that thought. Um, and I thought, well, because actually, like when you think about what he's just taking control of, the federal government, it's sort of like a manager of a bunch of risks. And um, many of those risks, existential risks. And, um, and then I realized that, that maybe there's like something interesting there, like, like looking at the way the federal government manages risk and looking at the price we pay for having someone who doesn't care all that much about managing the risks. Because coupled with him going up the White House and me being on opioids and not being in my right mind was 
the knowledge that, and I guess I'd seen in the newspaper, that there had been um, a formal process of transition that had in theory begun the day after the election. And that the Obama administration had, had sort of deputed a thousand people across the administration, all the agencies to prepare briefings uh, for people, for, for whoever uh, was coming in. And that, that these were like, it was like a thousand people working for six months. And you know, Obama, Obama, you know, he's a nerd. And you know that this was like a good, like a great college course on how the federal government worked. And that on the other side, you know, by, by norm and also federal subsidy, that, that whoever was coming in had to have a transition team. And both the Clinton and the Trump campaigns ha had these teams. And there were hundreds of people ready to rush in. And I found out that Trump had fired this whole operation uh, the day after the election. And so that that process had never occurred. And so I just wondered, like, what's, you know, that, that how's he going to kill me? And what happens when, when, like, what's out there to learn about this that nobody, that, that they didn't bother to learn about? And what I found, I, and I saw so the way it starts, it starts, you know, there are books in their book like objects. And, 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 you know, books, the premonition is a book. The Fifth Risk is a bit of a book-like object because it was written as a series of magazine pieces. Um, it just happened to hang together because it was magazine pieces about the same subject. But I sat there and I said, well, like, where do I start? If I'm gonna write about the federal government and, and like try to, the idea was go get the briefings that the Trump administration didn't get. I thought, I'm gonna pick something. I'm not gonna start with like the State Department or the Treasury Department uh, or something that most people kind of know is sort of important. I'm going to pick something that I don't know what it does. And I want to find out if it matters, if like they don't care, you know, like what goes on in this place. And so I picked kind of out of a hat. I had on the, my, office, my office desk, I had like, like all the ones nobody would care about, agriculture and commerce and labor and transportation and like, but energy. I thought, well, not only did he not do the transition, but he appointed Rick Perry to run the place. And Rick Perry had called for its, elim its elimination in, on, on the campaign trail. So he gave it to someone who, who wanted to get rid of it. So I said, I'll start there. What goes on in this place? And, and then I start to go get briefings. And it turns out they, among other things, managed the nuclear arsenal. So it get, very quickly, it got interesting. And I found myself in a position. I mean, it's, you know, you ask like how books start, uh, even pieces of writing start. You just got you, my jaw was on the floor. I was in a briefing that never happened about how the nuclear arsenal gets managed, like how you stop bombs from going off when they shouldn't, and how you make sure they go off when they they should. And I just thought, what? Why am I the first, to, you know, to hear this? Uh, so it was the, that was the beginning of a journey, and it was really a journey that could never have ended. I, I mean, I picked. I ended up. I ended up picking three departments: uh, agriculture, commerce, and and and. Um, um, God, agriculture, commerce, and energy, and um, I could have done the whole government. And every at every place, you could have found a couple of things. One, huge stakes, like rivetingly huge stakes, like nuclear bombs going off when they shouldn't, or and unbelievably interesting, mission-driven, dedicated people who were throwing their lives into trying to save the society, uh, and who were neglected, overlooked, abused. So that was, a, those were the ingredients, the sort of, the, store, the sort of ingredients I, I used to make the gumbo. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, huge stakes. I think about climate change. Um, you are thinking and talking a lot about uh, experts, um, you know, on your podcast, talking a lot about our widespread mistrust and distrust of experts these days, the very experts you were covering in that book, for example. Um, and when I think about starting Moms Clean Air Force, I remember being stunned by the closed circles of climate experts and policy wonks who spoke in incomprehensible jargon to each other. So how do experts themselves take some responsibility for the alienation we're feeling um, towards expertise? And what are some of the things you're hearing about that, that, are, that cover the breakdown um, in respect and, and actually an active dislike for expertise these days? That's a big question. Um, so, so it is a conundrum that, and it was the, and that the conundrum was the basis of the last season of Against the Rules, the podcast I do, um, that no society in the history of the earth has been, has been as generative of experts and expertise as ours. I mean, we are, we are a knowledge creation machine, the United States. Our universities are the greatest in the world. The federal government, what goes on inside of the federal government is miraculous in some places. Um, and, yet, and yet you back away from it a little bit and we're absolutely moronic at using the expertise. I mean, the pandemic and our response to the pandemic is a really good example of it. Um, and it's sort of like, why? And my, so your instinct is to blame the experts. Uh, in, in and maybe in maybe in the climate in in climate change the, that issue maybe that's a maybe that's a reasonable thing to do but, but i i think i think the problems are have have more to do with other things mm -hmm. um so i mean i tried to untangle this a bit in the podcast but i'll give you an example of what i mean i think like the nature of ex a lot of expertise, a lot of new expertise is people have a hard time understanding it um, as, as well as it might be explained. Um, so uh, a lot of expertise is essentially probabilistic. It's not, it's not you know something for sure. It's just your like uh, election forecasting has gotten much better than it, than it, than it used to be. Uh, a lot better than it used to be. Nate Silver is a huge improvement on like four white guys sitting around a table saying what they heard in a diner in Pennsylvania. And, and, and the, 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 prediction, the predictions are better, but they're not definitive. It's like, they're just like, they're gonna be wrong sometimes. Um, even medical expertise is that way, right? Uh, that got much, much better. Um, you'd much rather visit a doctor now than you would 50 years ago or hundred years ago, or even 20 years ago. Uh, much more likely to do something good for you but they're gonna be wrong sometimes. And, um, and it makes it, it's, that's an environment, it's a tricky environment for communicating the value of the expert. And, the, and, that, that, and it's an easy environment in which to undermine the credibility of an expert, because you can say, look, Nate Silver said there was a 78% chance that Hillary Clinton was gonna beat Donald Trump. And, uh, and she lost, so he doesn't know what he's talking about. And people don't kind of get their minds around the idea that, well, what he really said was that like 22 out of 100 elections, if you ran it 100, 100 times, Trump would win. He wasn't saying it wasn't going to happen. 
Uh, one example of how like, I think it's just like the world is more complex and, our, and the human mind just generally is not well suited to dealing with the kind of complexity you have to deal with to parse the expertise. There's another thing, and I don't want to just drone on. You just just wave your hand if you want me to shut up. Like when I when I start saying when I start, when I go on too long, but but let's just take the, the this giant massive pool of experts that are federal employees. Um, let's take one example. And this example I did a podcast about. And this example I also went back to to write an afterword of the for the fifth risk about. Um, the story goes as, as follows. Um, the government shutdown of whatever it was, 2018, I was in, and all those people got, all these experts got laid off. Like, like half the federal workforce was sent home and told they were, they were inessential workers and they didn't get paid. And I was just curious, like what was in that pool? Uh, and I got an alphabetized list of people who had been sent home. It was a subset, but nevertheless, it was like alphabetized. And I picked the guy on the top. It, and it, it was happened to be a guy, could have been a woman. His name was Arthur A. Allen. Been in the front of every class his whole whole school life, I'm sure. So, so Arthur A. Allen was an, and, he, and he, he's a really good example of the problem of many of our problems with experts. Arthur A. Allen, I went to go, I called him up and I said, I, I'm, I saw you like furloughed. I want to come, I think I said, I want to come write about you. I must have, but he, whatever he heard, he heard. I'll give there's a punchline to this. So he lives in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut. And I flew out to visit him and it turned out, and I said, I just wanted to explain what you do, what you've done. So we can understand what we just sent home and as inessential that we don't appreciate because we don't appreciate experts. He said, well, what I've done is this. He said, I'm the lone oceanographer in the Coast Guard search, search and rescue division. Um, and when I came in, there were lots of people not being found who were lost at sea because we couldn't figure out we know we knew where they got lost and we knew like what they were on life jacket a raft overturned sailboat but we couldn't figure out how the objects drifted because they drifted differently no one had made a study of that there was a backstory to why he got interested in it but he had on his own without prompting from his superiors many often in his spare time um had made himself the world's expert in how all kinds of different objects drift from naked man in the water to like overturned sailboat to someone on a with a life vest, whatever they, you know, depending on winds and, and currents, they move different directions and different speeds. So um, this is a non-trivial subject. Americans have an unbelievable ability to get lost at sea. Like the Coast Guard on average rescues 10 people a day and lose it. We lose three people a day. Those numbers used to be much worse because of this guy, and they've gotten better because of this guy. It took him like 15 years of working on this to classify, a, I don't know, 100 and something objects. He writes mathematical equations for how objects, these objects drift. He hands out the software to, every, to the Coast Guard search and rescue units around the country to use. The, like the week after, he deploys this back in 2007. A 300 pound man ran off a cruise ship 75 miles east of Fort Lauderdale in the middle of the night. They only found out later he was overboard like a couple hours later, but they had cameras on the cruise ship so they could go back and see where he'd gone overboard. 
So the Coast Guard had a start, starting point and how long it had been. And they had now, thanks to Arthur A. Allen, how a, a, a big fat man drifted in the ocean. Any other time in human history, that guy's just dead. They almost don't even bother to look for him. They, found, they pulled him out of the water alive, like seven or eight hours later, because they were precisely able to identify his location. So weird expertise saves all kinds of lives, probably thousands of lives around the world, because he shares his expertise with other navies and coast guards. Furloughed, sent home, unappreciated. Nobody even knows he exists. Um, I spent three days with him. And he... I interview his family, I have dinner with his family, I have this very emotional encounter with him where he starts to cry because he remembers watching a woman and her child die because they couldn't find the sailboat they were lost on, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going back to the airport after doing this and he calls me on his phone and he says, hey, you're, you're a writer. And I said, I said yeah, yeah, I'm a writer. He says, like, I see you like, pub my son said, you've like published books. And like, and I said, yeah, yeah. He says, well, like, you're going to write about this? And I said, you're going to write about me? And I said, I said, yeah. I said, Art, why did you think I flew across country to spend three days asking you questions about all this? He said, I just thought you were really interested in how objects drifted. And I thought in that moment, I thought, this is the mind of the expert. It's not their fault. They're like tunnel visioned on what they do especially the federal employees are basically forbidden from marketing themselves. They're not, they're not allowed to go out and explain themselves and tell you how they save thousands of lives. They, they're just doing what they do. It's our problem that we don't appreciate them. It's our fault. It's not his fault. That he, it's not his fault that no one knew that you shouldn't send him home because he's the only guy in the, in, in, in the country who knows how objects drift. Uh, so that's my view. Of it. My view of it is that this is a cultural problem rooted in like lack of civics education, lack of education, uh, like, and, and, and story storytelling laps. Like there should be more stories about guys like this. So when the next, the, you know, people are able to imagine the value of other people. I totally agree. I mean, that was the beauty of that book was finding corners that are so significant and consequential, and yet people don't know about them. Um, I'm, I'm sad that you're not writing about the EPA and, and many <laughs> other uh, agencies, because I think there are great stories there. But on that, um, just to switch track a little bit, the storytelling and the narrative that is being built by the January 6th panel is extraordinarily compelling, right? And it's individual stories that stand out in my memory. Um, you know, the Capitol Police woman standing and looking at a scene of carnage with her colleagues all bloody, or that idealistic young staff member who is disgusted by the um, unhinged behavior of her boss's uh, president who lost an election and decided he was going to take the presidency anyway. Do you see a connection between the breakdown in trust of expertise and the near breakdown in democratic passages and processes that we have experienced? I see what's at stake reading your books about um, what's at stake for a life, a human life lost at sea or the nuclear arsenal. How do you, how do you talk about what's at stake for democracy? That's another really big question. And I'm going to probably give you an equally unsatisfying answer. But 
Like in a very narrow way, you can see just in the recent Supreme Court decisions, the, the problem the society is gonna have governing itself democratically um, because of because of a it's part a dist a distrust a lack of recognition of the importance of experts. Yeah. Um, th this business about the EPA not being able to through the the EPA's experts not being able to have some sort of discretion in how they uh, achieve various climate goals, or for that matter, the CDC not being able to issue ma mass mandates, or you, you, by extension of this judgment from the Supreme Court, you could easily see why um, financial Wall Street firms would say the SEC has no right to impose these sort of regulations on us. That, that, that the, the, app, the, the network of expertise that is the federal government is being hamstrung in the name of really weird legal doctrine. Uh, and the Supreme Court has basically said Congress has to legislate all these micro issues because you we're, the the, ex, the experts aren't it, it's it's undemocratic uh, to allow the experts to have this kind of authority but in a really complicated society I mean never mind a really well functioning Congress imagine our Congress I mean you give these problems that are actually kind of sorted out by the experts back to Congress I mean it's just gonna be a mess things just won't happen um, so you can see in that decision, and maybe even in, in like the society's lack of understanding of how big a deal that decision is. A, a just, just a like a, a misunderstanding or a neglect of the importance of the expertise that is all over the federal government that, that, that sort of carries out the broad agenda that Congress has approved, but, but, but in a way that is responding to facts on the ground, new knowledge and so on. Um, so what happens as a result? You know, the effect of this is we're going to be even more poorly governed than we are. Now, this is this leads to breakdown in democracy. The, the democracy it looks like it doesn't work, right? Um, so there's one connection there. Um, that and and if you back, back away even further, I mean I'm kind of rambling here, but back away even further, and you look at the institutions in the society um, that have functioned kind of more or less better than other institutions. And I think it's kind of generally true. It's institutions that are on, I mean, I'm talking about political institutions that are on longer leashes that aren't, where they aren't kind of being run by plebiscite. Uh, Federal Reserve, for example, um, that where that you actually are just saying, you're saying we are actually, we, the people are not qualified, you know, to micromanage this problem. We're going to delegate this problem to people to people who know something about the subject and and just trust their judgment. We've lived through a president who was a trust destroying machine. I mean, in fact, it's sort of like his mo. It's like it, it's a strat and it's a strategy, right? If you yourself are extremely untrustworthy, like if 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 you can't win a trust game because no one would actually no one in his right mind would trust you, the only way you win is you create an environment that, where there's where there's no trust. Then, then you level the playing field. And that's that's the strategy. So you set about undermining the trust in institutions and experts and all the rest. But you can't really, the society like this, you can't, no society can function without, without uh, some trust in, the, in experts. So it's a, I do think it, it is a big problem. It is part of the seeming unraveling of our democracy, but it's not the only part.
It's just, it's part of it. It's part of the story. Hmm. Yeah, experts become the enemy and um, people are taught not to trust the experts and therefore everything kind of gets boiled down to an opinion. And my opinion is as good as your opinion, whether it's an opinion about climate change or cancer or anything. Right. Um, and yeah, and, and, and people, you know, it's a, yeah. Well, so, I mean, back, and back to this idea that I mentioned in the beginning that, that the, na the na nature of expertise has changed in so many spheres in ways that make it harder for people to comprehend the expertise. So I wrote a book called Moneyball. And it was about essentially about in, in sports, in baseball, something that's it's now swept through sports, but a change of who the expert was in sports. It went from being someone you could obviously say, oh, that's an expert because they had played baseball. They were, you know, lived in baseball forever. You recognize them as a baseball person, so on and so forth. Two, some geek with a computer who knew more, actually did know more about what should be being done on a baseball field than the person who had actually played the game. It's, it was very hard. It's now happened, but it's very hard for the fan base, for the management, for the owners to get their mind around the idea that this other person is the expert. And it's complicated in a way, and you're not gonna completely understand what they're saying. And that's happened in a lot of areas. And so I think that we're, we're dealing with like multiple things going on at once uh, and complexity is part of it. You know, you're kind of, um, I think about storytelling and I think about how we love stories because they're entertaining. But I think we also are kind of hardwired for that ancient, uh, that ancient instinct about like, so the moral of the story is da 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 da. How, how much do you think about that when you're thinking about stories to tell? Um, and, uh, and, and what kind of stories do you hear back about the impact, for example, of your book, The Fifth Risk, on, uh, on people thinking about government? I've had lots of um, kind of thank you notes, one way or another, from, wow. people, from people in government. Because, I mean, it seems like such a basic point, like, all you got to do is spend some time, you know, rattling around one of these agencies to realize it, like, not, look, they're not all like, perfect. But there are an awful lot of people who could make a lot more money uh, outside in the private sector, who have made a conscious decision, a choice to, to serve their country. And it, it isn't just the army that's that are patriots all these people are patriots um they love the country and just the simply between the lines pointing that out um i got a lot of a lot of gratitude from people who were in these jobs also got um i got a lot of response from people this this in my view this is a book that should not have ever done well or been written and that, that everybody should know all this stuff. Like we should have a basic civics education. It's, it was amazing how many, like I'm in Berkeley, California. Everybody talks about politics all the time. They don't talk about government. They don't know what's inside the Department of Energy or the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Commerce. And so I had people who were quite, who had opinions about everything political, who were kind of like, wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know the Department of Agriculture did all that. Um, so there was that kind of response. More broadly, the question of like, how stories change the world, I think is a very complicated subject because I found over and over again that 
I, I would kind of faintly would expect a reader to respond one way to what I've written. And then I'm shocked to find that they've responded sometimes in an entirely different way. First book I wrote was Liar's Poker. It was about Wall Street. I thought the only agenda I had, to the extent I had an agenda, was if you, some young, bright young person, college person, student, pick this book up, they would have Wall Street demystified for them. And they wouldn't just kind of like chase the money because it's, this seems to be an important thing. They'd see how, they'd see how in some ways trivial the work was, how unimportant it was. And funny, you know, enriching, but they wouldn't. And I had by far, by far, the biggest response to the book was letter from a young man at Ohio State University saying, dear Mr. Lewis, I've read your book about how to get ahead on Wall Street. I think I've adopted, I've, I think that I've, I've taken in all the lessons, but I'm wondering if you have even more that you left out of the book because I'm even more excited. I'm really excited to go to Wall Street now. And that happens over and over and over where people say, I mean, I've had people tell me I read The Fifth Risk and now I see why the government doesn't work. So no, 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 no. That, that, that's not what you saw. <laughs> Whatever you saw, that's not what you saw, but they saw that. And I can't do, you can't do, so stories, you're taking your hand off the rudder a little bit when you tell a story as opposed to write an essay or write an opinion piece that you're saying, you're saying, you're letting your object drift. And Art Allen might tell you how stories drift at sea, but I still haven't figured it out. I mean, you know, they drift at sea in really funny ways. And, uh, and you, you got, you got, if you, if you're in my line of work, you just have to accept that. I mean, otherwise you write bad stories. Otherwise you write stories where you're trying to kind of muscle the reader around and the reader doesn't participate then. They feel like they feel your heavy hand on their, on their shoulder. Right. I loved your line, um, all these people are patriots. And uh, you, know, you mentioned civics education, which we don't have anymore. I think a lot about young people going into government and as they see and um, read about um, the conditions on, with which people are treated um, and the lack of respect and lack of trust, I worry uh, about where's the next generation gonna come from. Um, what other things besides civics education do you think about uh, could help repair this breach of trust? There are trusted institutions that deserve massively more support than they get that are, I think, going to be critical in rebuilding, rebuilding the government. I'll give you one example. And it, was, it, it was, and it was the head of this institution that was my jungle guide for the fifth risk. Uh, it's called the Partnership for Public Service. Max Steyer is, runs it. And Max, Max started this with money and passion from um, a guy who's not, not alive anymore named Sam Heyman. Um, I don't know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. As a young guy, Max was a young Yale, I think Yale Law School graduate, maybe Stanford Law School. Anyway, he, he, um, he wanted to, he wanted to set, he started out with the ambition to create an, an, an institution that would encourage young people to go work in the federal government, bright young people, track new talent to the government because he thought the government was that important. He quickly realized that the only way that was gonna happen 
is if the government jobs were more appealing to people that you weren't going to just railroad young people in. You had to change the conditions of government. You had to make it work better. You had to be more of a meritocracy. It had to, you know, people had to be managed more intelligently. So the partnership has become this enterprise that trains government managers, that educates, that man helps manage the government, the transition between administrations, um, that educates people who are moving jobs within agencies that is a reservoir of knowledge about what's going on in every agency of government. And Max has to run around hat in hand, trying to raise the money to keep, his, keep this enterprise going. And I look at it and I think, like he should have a billion dollars. That it, it, he, he has the trust of both parties. Republicans and Democrats use him. Senators routinely come to him to ask him questions about how valuable is this? What's important, how important is this? Explain to me the Department of Labor, that kind of stuff. I mean, it is, He's like a, so it's an example of like a point of light. Unbelievably, it's doing unbelievably important work. And it, it is the reason I wrote my book. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to, he got, he let me, got me into the places I needed to get to write the book. Um, and yet he, he's like starved of funds. That's so, so, and Max would tell you that. So back to his original problem and the point you, the question you raise, like how you get young people in the government. There's one, there's one statistic that is so revealing that Max keeps. Um, in information technology in the federal government, people who make the computers run, like, like naturally young person's job across the government, there are now six times more people over the age of 60 than under the age of 30. Think about, think about that. Like how many people over the 60, 60 know how to use their phone? You know, it's just like, this is insane, right? Uh, right? It, this should be, if you're gonna find young people anywhere in government, you'd think, well, this is a natural place. They'll roll in, they'll, they'll explain to the old people how to fix their, their right software smarter, whatever it is. I mean, like no wonder Obamacare crashes the first day it's out. No wonder the IRS is having problems with tax. I mean, it's like you go across the government. This, is, this becomes a, 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 a cross government problem. It all runs on technology, so that it's a it's a so the you see problem, you see kind of like someone who is in the middle of it and I think has a great capacity to fix it, and then you see like nobody's figuring out that like they should be shoveling money at him. Uh, um, it tells me well, it sounds sad. It's like a sad story, but there's an opportunity. There are things to be done that aren't being done. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and Max is in, he's the one example. Um, there are people well, who want to fix. He sounds like he should be a, a, a big tent speaker. Um, oh, he'd be perfect. Yeah, except he would bore you to tears about some minutia. You know, I come in and I like pick the low hanging fruit that's entertaining. I grab Art Allen and I spin a tale about Art Allen. Max will actually give you data, and the the truth is, you'd rather have a story than data. You know, it's just it's just people just generally. Uh, but Max actually knows stuff. Yeah. What's the most challenging book you've ever worked on? So I'll say about the fifth risk. It wasn't the most challenging because it was like Trump just, it was Trump just electrified the material. Like once you really neglect the federal government as president, you're just, it's an invitation to turn this stuff to colorize the whole thing for someone like me. Um, uh, it was the, and that, it was the, but it was the biggest surprise in how, well, it did. 
that it was the most it was the the fifth versus the biggest overperform. I did I didn't realize just how hungry people would be for this story for these this story. The country cares. It's like it's it's not getting across, but the uh, the country cares about this subject. Mm -hmm. um, the hardest story was the Undoing Project, most challenging material, which is it's related to what we're talking about. It's about this collaboration between two Israeli psychologists, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman, famous for Nobel Prize and a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And it was a project to try to understand how the human mind worked um, and how it, it's systematic irrationality that they were, they were uncovering. Their work leads to behavioral economics. Their work leads to Moneyball, the book I wrote. Um, and the challenge I realized, it, it, most of my books take a couple of years you know, when they're really fast, it's a year. It's, you know, six months of grabbing material and six months of writing. Um, that book took eight years and I put it down. It's the only book I've ever put down, picked back up, put down, picked back up. And it took me a while to figure out why this was. And then I figured it out. Um, it was the first time I had subjects who were so, whose minds were so much greater than mine that I knew I wasn't gonna be able to get my mind fully around theirs. It was that up to there, up till then in my career and after in my career, I've been mostly the B student writing about C students, I'm writing about jocks, I'm writing about, you know, I'm writing about traders on Wall Street. It's like I can understand what they do. I can under, the, the, in this case, I was the B student writing about A students. And I had this like these misgivings, like, should I be the one to do this? I just I'm just don't have the wattage that they have. And finally, I, I picked it up and finally wrote it in the end is I put so much work into it. I'd taken five trips to Israel each a week. I mean, I think of that. I made five trips to Israel each a week and still not sure I could write the book, gathering all this string. And I realized Danny's not going to be here forever. Amos is already dead. No one else is going to have the privilege access I have. I mean, I might as well write it because no one else is going to write it. But I did it with like this little voice in my head telling me you're too stupid to write this. Um, so that, that was the difficult one. Wow. Um, Michael, talk a little bit about uh, how you see the media as part of the problem in uh, breakdown in trust or not. Um, where does the media, big media, social media, mainstream media, what, what's the role of media in all of this? Well, I'm not, you know, when I think, I, I've always been, I had this little hesitation when people start talking about the media, because the media is just a whole bunch of people. I mean, I guess I'm media, right? I'm part right. of it in some way. Mm -hmm. And I'm just off on my own figuring things out. Right. Nobody's like telling me what to do. I'm not some part of some institution that's guiding me to mislead people in some particular way. Or, I mean, I'm pretty free to kind of say whatever I want to say. And I don't feel any pressures to say anything or not say anything. Um, and I think a lot of people in the media are like me. Now, there are enterprises that are toxic, like Fox News, where there's obviously a lot of pressure to say a certain thing and where there's a, re a reward structure for saying things that are just not true, um, that you even if you know they're not true. Um, and that creates distortions. I know it's really important. I know I should get more worked up about it. But I do kind of think like people sort of get the media they want 
And that's what's happened is that like, you just have much more choice in the media you get. I mean, we're a long way from three, three networks and you got what was on the three networks and it was basically the same thing. I mean, you get in a very managed way, exactly. You get to feed all your prejudices, all your predispositions, amplify all the things you already think. And people don't generally like to encounter stuff that they disagree with. So it just, it creates these, you know, siloed citizens. Um, it's not the media's fault exactly, it's technology's fault. You know, it's sort of like technology made that possible. And we're grappling with how to like maintain a society in spite of this media environment. I don't think it's really like fixable though on the level of the communicator. I, I think that the people you're gonna, if there's a market for it, it's gonna get produced one way or another. It's sort of like dealing with the market for it. And that again is a, a basic ed, a, an educational problem. I think that there is a pleasure if you're taught it in school in seeking out points of view that are different from your own. And most, most people just never get it, never learn that pleasure. There's pleasure in, in, in grappling with difficult things in a complicated way. And most people don't get there. Uh, so I, when I think about like the media, I don't think you're gonna fix it with like a rules about the media. I don't think you're gonna fix it by appealing to people's decency in the media. I don't think you're gonna fix it by like shouting at Fox News, you can't lie like that. They're gonna keep lying because there's a market for the lies. The only way to fix it is like, sort of like teach, I mean, it's, it's how we educate people, like teach people how to consume it. It should be a basic, you, you know, part of public education should be how you consume this, this, this hairball that's coming at you. Uh, it's just like part of public education should be how you deal with, you know, financial advice and money and money problems. I mean, they're like basic how to be a citizen stuff that isn't really being taught, uh, certainly isn't thought as a, of as a subject, but kind of should be a subject. Yeah, that's a, the next great project, the civics course that everyone should take. Um, but since we're talking about school, let's go in a little bit more of a writerly direction. Um, talk about some of the writers who have influenced you, books you've read, um, even going back to childhood. What, what are, who are some of the people who have resonated with you over the years? So, and, or have you picked up a book that you adored in college and then thought, what was I thinking? So that's funny. Um, I, I, I was a wild child. I was not, I was not a bookish. I, I read a lot, but I could have, I would have fooled you. You would never have guessed I was someone who stayed up late reading at night. And I read just what I wanted and not what was assigned. So I, I never, I did not have high literary taste when I was a little kid. It was like Hardy Boys, sports stories. Mm -hmm. You know, if I could find stuff with dirty words on it, my parents' bookshelf, I grabbed that. You know, it was, it was, and when stuff was foisted upon me, I just, eh, I wouldn't read it. So I was a very indifferent student uh, for a long time. And then something happened when I was about six, 15, 16, about 16, picked up Steinbeck and I just mowed through all of it, except for Grace of Wrath because it had been assigned. And, um, and I just, did, the teachers, you know, I just had teachers that, it, that didn't, that I rebelled against a bit. Not every subject, but my English teachers for sure. And um, in fact, I read Grace of Wrath like seven or eight years ago and my jaw was on the floor. I couldn't believe how good it was. I mean, I just like, I said, why didn't I read this? You know, um, but uh, once I realized that like 
I got this transporting pleasure. It still wasn't a self-conscious liter uh, intellectual literary exercise. I just liked it. Um, it was Thomas Wolfe and it, it was the great white males, Thomas Wolfe and Hemingway and Fitzgerald really meant a lot to me when I was 18 years old. I thought I was kind of like him. I was going to Princeton, you know, I wore sweat around my neck. I, you know, I just thought, you know, yeah, I, I could kind of relate. Um, never thought ever in a million years thought like I'm going to be a writer. <clears throat> I mean, that was like the furthest. I just like to read. And I can remember the pinnacle of like pleasure um, was freshman year in college. <clears throat> I picked up, I was assigned. Then I started reading the assigned stuff. Uh, Huckleberry Finn. I never read Huckleberry Finn. And I can remember having tears pouring down my face. I, I was laughing so hard and I was thinking, and that feeling was so, that was such an important feeling seared in my brain. Because when I came around to the idea, I was like, maybe I want to try to write something when I got out of college. I remember thinking what I want to do is make tears come down people's faces because they like it. They're having so much fun. So I associated, I always associated it with fun. It was just fun and it was never work. And so when I came, when I really oddly set out to like, oh, I'm going to write stuff, it was just fun. It was supposed to be fun. Um, so that was my experience. And then later, you know, I later, I, I broadened my palette and I narrate all kinds of stuff, but uh, it was all, you know, it, it was, you know, there, and the, you know, the last addition to the canon was Tom, Tom Wolf. Uh, it, when I was a kid, it was like, I picked him up and I thought, man, this is just fun. Um, so it wasn't respectable. And I have huge, as a result, I mean, like huge gaps in my reading. I mean, there isn't, if we played the game of name, let's see who can name the great book they haven't read. And the person who can name the most outrageous omission wins. I would just run circles around you. You'd run out of, you run out of books uh, <laughs> before I ran out of books. And think of all the pleasure you have. That's right. That's right. That, right. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah, no, I, I can see this, um, you know, can see how the great Gatsby can make you laugh and it can, I, the end of it, I, tears run down my face every time. Um, in that case, in the case of that book, it is, it's like a gem. It's an, it's like, it's so exquisitely written. It's, it's like, you, you almost can't believe it's like written by an angel. You can't believe a human being wrote, wrote like yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, tell us a little bit about your next project or what are you, you're not, I guess you're not going to write a book about the EPA. Well, I do have, it's delicate because to do it, to take, to move this story forward, the government story forward, mm -hmm. there's no point in me writing the fifth risk all over again, right? I've done that. There is some point in someone, me or someone like me, going in to each of the agencies and documenting exactly what's there, what's going on in the form of a story, in case someone comes in next and tries to dismantle it. So people know what's being, they, they know, they'll ask, all right, you're gonna take apart the Coast Guard or whatever, where's Art Allen? Like, what did you do with him? Uh, so there's some, there's a, so you can establish, it's like taking an inventory before you give the house over to someone on it for an Airbnb. Like you want to know, you know, how much silverware there is, how many forks you have in the drawer. Um, I, there is a, that's something I would really like to do and make it entertaining enough that like, it's not going to be, it's not going to be obviously comprehensive. It's like picking a couple of things so that people have markers. Uh, okay. You're going to go into the department. You're going to cut half, half the department of transportation. Are you going to put some idiot in charge of it? 
right, we want to know what happened to that thing. Um, so I do, I haven't lost interest in it. And, but I think it would take a team of writers, not, to, I mean, that's a, it's a big project and there yeah. are lots of agencies. Um, at this very moment on Friday, I handed in a 17 page outline to Apple Plus for a TV show, a drama that I sold them. And probably the very next thing I do is going to be to write the pilot for that TV show over the next six weeks. And then the question is, do they make it? And if they make it, then it's a whole other thing. Um, but I've been fooling around with, I've gotten very interested in the financial world again. Um, it, it, and it's, it's char specific characters in the financial world. And it's sort of fair chance I'm going to write a book that looks like, kind of looks like a, maybe a crypto book, but it isn't. It's a book about how to fix the world. Um, and through the eyes of someone who's trying to do it with a crypto fortune. Um, and so I've got, those are the projects. I, those are projects. What I haven't done, well, it I've works. Lost, the media, talk about the media environment. What I've lost is I used to have a long form magazine life, like at Vanity Fair, the New York Times, New Republic. Those were the three major stops in my career. I don't really have a place to do that kind of work. So the podcast has taken the place of that kind of work. The podcast is the closest I get to my long, old long form life. And I'm, I, we're going to have a fourth season of that, uh, but it'll be a year from now. Hmm. Oh. Um, fixing the world through crypto somehow, what do you think? Is it going to work? It isn't crypto that's going to fix the world, but I mean, people don't appreciate how odd it is what we've just lived through. Um, fortunes have been created and landed in very strange hands and not just little fortunes, $30 billion fortunes in hands of people who are thinking about a lot of other problems differently. And, um, it, it's, it's, that's the opportunity. It isn't that it's a, it's a crypto and crypto funded people who are very interesting to fund. And, um, and so it isn't that I, I, I'm not, a I don't really have much interest in one way or the other in crypto itself. It's, it's more like, oh, it's, it's created opportunities for certain kinds of characters to do things they couldn't have done. Um, more, I mean, it's, it's, it is a feature of our world, much more than it was a feature of the world before ours, that huge fortunes can get made very quickly uh, and behave differently from fortunes that were accumulated slowly over generations or over light, long lifetimes. Um, and, uh, and I'm interested in particular, there's one character, I don't want to tell you who he is, but it's one character in particular who has accumulated a fortune and I think is, is, is going to shine some light on the world that will interest the big tent people. It's, it isn't just business, it's finance, it's interesting in government and politics and the money's finding its way lots of different places and in a lots of kind of experiments. So I'm fiddling with a book there, um, but say there's like a, like, like a portfolio. I got, I got the TV show, I got the podcast, I got, uh, and I got maybe a book and they're probably, the TV show is probably the first thing. You definitely have a full plate though. Um, Back to those January 6th panels, um, I don't know if you were traveling or whether you caught up with them, but as a storyteller, watching this story narrative being woven um, and uh, listening to the characters, how do, you, how, do you, how do you evaluate that process um, 
How's it going? So I've only watched, I made a point to watch Cassidy Hutchinson and mm-hmm. right, I got the name right. And I watched a snippet of the guy yesterday who stormed the Capitol. Yeah. Um, but then I've watched bits and pieces online. You know, I, um, I've been awed by how awed by how masterful a job they've done. It's really hard to do what they've done. And this is this is much harder than me writing a book. I mean, there are a lot of it's it, wrangling this material the way they've done it and letting Liz Cheney and Republicans kind of take the lead. Mm-hmm. It's breathtakingly. We live in a society that doesn't neither side wants to be persuaded of anything the other side thinks. And um, it is so hard to, to, for, to bust the, into the, little, the, the, the 350 million silos that we have. This clearly has busted into some people's silos. And uh, it's, it's like, it's unbelievably compelling. I, I, when it's over, I'm sure I'll go back and look at all of it. And I might even go back and look at all of it as just like an exercise in storytelling, like what they did. Um, it, it, I'm sure this is going to be done by other people before I get to it. If it hasn't been done already, the New York Times will do a big feature on how this was all put together um, and, and how this, guy, this television guy orchestrated the whole thing. But I've been, I've been like really impressed by how, by, by how it's been pulled off. It, you can imagine a, a, a dozen other ways it might have been done, all of them worse. It's hard to imagine a better way to have done it. Yeah, it has been incredibly impressive. One of the things we used to talk about when I worked at Esquire magazine um, was uh, what it was like to publish a, a story in a monthly that happened six months ago. And now more than ever, we want to tell everything immediately. And I think there might be some real virtue in waiting six months and letting this commission finish and letting things settle and then going and not doing a fast uh, review or dive or story about it. But it is an extraordinary event, I think. Yeah, Um, that's a good point. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. I know we're out of time and um, sadly, but- Love uh, talking to you. And thanks for making the time and making it easy for me. Vanessa. Yes, Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael and Dominique for coming to Big Tent. There's consensus in the chat that we could listen to you until midnight or even further. And uh, thank you, Amelia, for making this happen. Thank you all for watching. Um, Please keep an eye out for our email with the recap um, and the recording. Uh, We do have two events coming up on Tuesday, July 26th at 9.30 a.m. We're gonna be writing letters to Wisconsin voters, providing voter ID information, ensuring their votes count, Uh, in the upcoming state and general elections. On Wednesday, August 3rd, we're thrilled to welcome Dan Pfeiffer, co-host of Pod Save America, former Obama communications director, and most recently the author of his new book, The Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. Please sign up for both events using the links in the chat. Please check our website and our bi-monthly newsletter for updates and activism. Thank you so much and good night to everybody. Thank you.